you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6. For the last several weeks, we've been looking at praying the Jesus way from Matthew chapter 6, verses 5 through 13. And as we said when we started this series, that uh, this model prayer is actually a paragraph that's been lifted from the Sermon on the Mount that Jesus preached. In his Sermon on the Mount, Jesus takes the concept of what the people thought it meant to be a citizen of God's kingdom and what it really meant, and he turned it on its head. He turned it upside down from what they thought. For example, some folks say, well, at least I don't kill. And Jesus says, let me tell you. He says, Have you, do you hate your brother? Are you angry with your brother? If you are, then you've missed the mark that God has set. They said, well, at least I haven't committed adultery. And Jesus said, well, have you looked at a pretty woman and lusted after her in your heart? If you have, you've sinned and you've missed God's mark. Then Jesus switches tactics because he knows how religious people think and how religious people act. And he says, well, somebody says, well, I give to the poor. Jesus says, why do you give to the poor? They say, well, I fast. Jesus asks, well, why do you fast? What's the purpose? What's the motives of what it is you're doing? And then in the prayer paragraph we're looking at, somebody says, well, I pray. And Jesus says, well, how do you pray? He says, are you praying to be seen? Are you praying that these other folks will look at you and say, my goodness, what a wonderful citizen of God's kingdom that person is. Or in our language today, do we pray so someone will say, wow, what a wonderful Christian. What a great religious person that really, really is. Uh, if we do any of these churchy things, praying, fasting, giving to the poor, teaching a Bible class, leading singing, uh, being in charge of missions and doing missions and this operation, children, all the, all the two boxes, the different missions we do, if we do it to be seen, if we do it with the intention of attention, then we are hypocrites and we too have missed the mark. But then being the good leader that Jesus is, he doesn't just say, you guys need to pray right. Jesus then shows what he's talking about. He says, pray this way. And he gives us that model prayer in verses 9 through 13. And we're going to read that prayer again this morning. Matthew 6 beginning at verse 9. In this matter, therefore, pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, or holy be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And do not lead us into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So in verses 9 and 10, we discover some things about God, some characteristics about God that we need to know and we need to pray. First of all, we learn that God is our Father. And that word Father could better be translated Abba. That's the word Jesus would have used in Aramaic. And, and that word means Daddy. God is our Daddy. He wants to have that Father-Child relationship with us. Then we talked about the fact that God has a reputation. He's holy. And we need to refer to him as holy. And, 
as Christ followers, we have an obligation to try to help preserve God's reputation. We don't need to take God's name in vain. We don't need to use God's name loosely in our language. Uh, then we talked about the fact that God has a realm. He has a kingdom. Thy kingdom come. Your kingdom come. Uh, it is the idea that God is ruling in the hearts of men and women and boys and girls, and, and we want to see that kingdom in, increase. Uh, it's my desire. I just wish every person in Fairview would come to know Jesus as their Savior and before it's too late, before they face the Lord in eternity. I want to see his kingdom grow. Jesus says the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. It starts out so small, and then it grows to such a big plant that the birds rest in their branches. And that's what the kingdom of God is. And then the fourth thing we looked at about the Father and about God that we need to know is his right to rule. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This morning in heaven, God is not wringing his hand saying, I hope these, these angels don't get out of line today. Oh, I hope Saturn doesn't fall out of orbit today. In the heavens, what God says goes. God, God's sovereign rule reigns firm in heaven. And our prayer should be that that same rule reign on earth in our life and in other people's life. And we talked about it, and I'm not going to re-preach that sermon. And I know y'all say, thank you for not doing that. Uh, we do need to remember that when we pray, Lord, your will be done, we are surrendering our will to God's will. We are saying, God, you have the absolute right to run my life. God, you have the absolute right to interrupt my life. God, you're in charge, I am not. And then last week, in verses 11 and 12, Jesus switches gears to focus from praise to the Father to asking the Father for our needs. And two things are seen in these verses 11 and 12. In verse 11, we looked at last week, we looked at God's furnishing. When we said, give us this day our daily bread, we realize that God is a giver. We don't demand that God give us this or that God give us that. We ask that God gives us our daily bread. We ask that. We realize that God is the one that furnishes it. Even though we may work and even though we may have the money, it's God that blesses us with the strength and the ability and the talent to do what it is that we do. God provides for all of it. He gives us our daily bread. We don't need to pray for last, next week's bread or tomorrow's bread or next year's bread. We need to learn to depend on God day to day in our everyday lives. The word bread stands for all of our physical needs. God promises to meet all of our physical needs. We ask the question, is there a want, is there a difference between our needs and our wants? And we find out that, that there is. We want plenty of money, nice clothes, a car, a house, good health, no problems, no worries. We want our husbands to act like they have sense. We want our kids to act right. We want all of these things. <coughs> but what we really need to ask God for, God, just give me what I need to get by today. Give me, give me the food that I need. Give me the companionship that I need. Give me the shelter that I need. Give me the money that I need to get through today. Now, that's not saying we're not supposed to have a savings account or we're not supposed to plan for the future. When we read in Proverbs, the proverb Solomon says, Take a lesson from the ant. The ant works hard and puts up stuff so that when the wintertime gets here, they've got food. But we don't need to get so far ahead in our planning 
that we forget that it's God that gives the giving. Amen? Amen. Give us this day our daily bread. But not only do we need God's furnishing, verse 12 leads us to something else about God. You know, many Christians believe that the most important thing that they need are physical in nature. Food, shelter, job, health. And you say, well, we don't do that. Do we? Take a look at your prayer requests to God and most of our prayer requests. What do they ask for? Don't they generally ask for good health? For blessing? Lord, get me through this heart procedure. Lord, help me through this cancer. Lord, help my neighbor through uh, their hard times. It, it turned, they tend to be physical in nature, and there's nothing wrong with asking that. We should pray, Lord, give us this day our daily bread. But I want to suggest to you this morning, the Christian's greatest need is not physical in nature, but it's spiritual in nature. The most important thing the Christian needs is found in verse 12. When Jesus says there, and forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors. Three things this morning. First of all, the situation. Secondly, the solution. And then third, the stumbling block. So number one, the situation. Here's the situation, y'all. We are sinners. Every last one of us sitting here, every person on the face of the earth, we are sinners. And the New Testament uses lots of different words to describe sin. And in this situation, Matthew uses the, the idea of sin being a moral or a spiritual debt that we owe to God. Uh, a lot of times when we sin, we don't think about the fact that when we sin, we sin before God. First and foremost, we sin against God. David said in Psalm 51, even though he committed adultery with Bathsheba and and Psalm 51 is about asking God for forgiveness from that sin. David realized, he said, against thee and thee only have I sinned. We need to understand that when we sin, when we miss the mark, we are sinning against God. We are racking up a tab. I read on, uh, heard on the news, usually when I get to work, I, I don't watch the news much anymore because I get aggravated. And so uh, my heart doesn't need things like that, but I usually do. When I get to work, check the headlines. That way I can click on those things I want to click on. Well, apparently these two brothers somewhere in one of the big towns ran up a $300,000 bar tab and left and didn't pay it. And uh, I thought, my goodness, what a, what a tab to walk out and stiff somebody with. But then when you look at what we've done, how big is our tab that we've ran up against God? How big of a tab have we racked up in our sin against God? Sin is man's greatest enemy. And it's man's greatest problem. And you know what? Becoming a Christian does not eliminate the sin problem. Let me say that again. Becoming a Christian does not eliminate the sin problem. In fact, I'm convinced that becoming a Christian, becoming a Christ follower makes us more aware of the sin that's in our life. It should. The Holy Spirit gets busy revealing what it is in our life that we've done wrong. Before we come to Christ, the Holy, the Holy Spirit convicts us that we're sinners and that we need a Savior. After we become Christians, after we become Christ followers, 
The Holy Spirit starts making us more like Jesus. And making us more like Jesus, the Holy Spirit's got to root that sin out of us. Kind of like peeling back a layer, or peeling an onion. Layer by layer. Y'all ever peeled onions? And you think you finally got it peeled and you have another little layer you got to pull back and another little layer. That's what the Holy Spirit does to our heart and it reveals our sin to us. Uh, the situation is, Christ followers or not, we have a sin problem. I have a sin problem. You have a sin problem. So now that we're all in the same boat, what's the solution? The solution is we need forgiveness. In verse 12, we need forgiveness for the Christian and the non-Christian alike. The solution to the sin problem is forgiveness by the blood of Jesus Christ and through the blood of Jesus Christ. Now, while the solution is the same, the way the blood of Jesus is applied is different for non-Christians than it is for Christians. We all need the blood of Jesus, but the way that blood is applied is different. For a non-Christian, they need to know the ABCs. What do I need to do to trust Jesus as my Savior? First of all, admit you're a sinner. Secondly, believe in the finished work that Jesus Christ did on the cross. Understand that you can't save yourself. You're not good enough. You're not holy enough. God demands perfection. God is holy. God can't be where sin is. So one sin kicks us off the island. One sin gets us tossed off the boat. We aren't good enough to save ourselves. But God knew that. And Jesus Christ came from heaven as the Son of God. He lowered himself. He became a man to live for 30 years on this earth. He lived perfectly. We can't live perfectly. Jesus could. And he did. And he became the perfect, spotless sacrifice for my sin and for your sin. And if you're not a Christian, when you trust Jesus as your Savior, God takes that file full of your sins. And he takes it out of your hands and he gives it to Jesus. And he takes Jesus' file of righteousness and he takes it out of Jesus' hand and he puts it in your hand. The blood of Jesus paid the price for my sin. The blood of Jesus will pay the price for your sin if you're not a Christ follower. You become not only declared not, it's a legal transaction. God looks at you and says not guilty. Before you become a Christian, before you become a Christ follower, God looks at you and he sees your sin. And you are separated from God eternally unless you change course of your life. But when you decide to trust Jesus as your Savior, and, Jesus, and God takes your sin away from you, puts it on Jesus, Jesus died for it. He takes Jesus' righteousness and gives it to you. Now when God looks at you, he doesn't see your sin. He sees the blood of Jesus. Just like in Exodus, at that tenth plague of God against Pharaoh in Egypt, the death of the firstborn, God told Moses, I'm going to kill every living firstborn creature in the land of Egypt. Humans, animals, everything. And he said, the way to prevent this happening for your house is to make a sacrifice and take the blood of that animal that you sacrificed put it on the doorpost and the lintel. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. When you trust Jesus as your Savior, God doesn't see your sin. 
He sees your blood and he passes over your guilt because Jesus Christ paid for it. If you're not a Christ follower, you need to trust that work Jesus did for you. It's enough. How do you know it's enough? Because Jesus, three days after Jesus died, he was resurrected. That shows that God accepted the sacrifice of Jesus. And because he lives, I can live and you can live. ABCs, admit you're a sinner, believe in the finished work of Jesus Christ on the cross, confess to Jesus, I'm a sinner, Lord save me. I can't save myself. It's that simple. But the problem is that even though the blood of Jesus Christ puts us in a position to be declared not guilty, God looks at us and says not guilty because of the blood of Jesus. Another thing that happens to us when we trust Jesus as our Savior is the fact that we are adopted into the family of God. We become God's child. Hear me. If you've truly become God's child, there is nothing you can do to make you not God's child. There's nothing we can do to change that relationship. My daughter will always be my daughter. She can't change that. Once you're God's child, you're always God's child. Once you have truly trusted Jesus as your Savior, the salvation issue has been settled. The problem is, even though we have been saved from the penalty of sin, we still have the presence of sin in our lives. We still have that old man that even though we haven't, even though we've trusted Jesus as our Savior, that old man hasn't died yet. That's a, something that I'm going to be working on between now and whenever the Lord calls me home. I'm going to be dying to Andy and living to Jesus Christ. I'm going to be less like Andy, more of Andy's dying through the power and the work of the Holy Spirit. We still have sin in our lives. See, we have a problem sometimes as Christians. We like to pick and choose sin. Just like in the Sermon on the Mount when somebody says, well, I haven't killed anybody. Jesus says, what about your attitude? Do you hate them? Do you, are you angry with them? I hadn't committed adultery. Well, have you lusted after a woman in your heart? We want to say, well, at least I haven't killed or at least I haven't committed adultery or, or at least I ha I'm not guilty of homosexuality or, or at least I'm not guilty of this sin or that sin. Y'all don't fire me when I say this. But did you know that the sins you commit are every bit as sinning against God as those other sins? We need forgiveness. I need forgiveness. You need forgiveness. Don't think the gospel and the message of forgiveness was for non-Christians. I need the gospel more today than I did the day I was saved. We need that gospel message. Even though we've been declared not guilty... We still sin. And we need God's forgiveness. Sin separates us from God. And while the non-Christian is separated from God for eternity, as a Christian, when we get separated from God, the relationship doesn't change, but the fellowship does. Our fellowship gets out of whack with God when we sin. When we mess up, when we sin, when we miss the mark, that's just a little bit of us that's not walking closely to Jesus. 
And I've used this illustration before, and I think it's a good one. I haven't came across one that works better for me, so I'm going to use it again. In the Smoky Mountains, if you go to Newfound Gap, when you get up to the top of the mountain, you're right on the border of North Carolina and Tennessee. And there's a sign that says Tennessee-North Carolina border. And you can take one leg and you can put it in Tennessee. And you take the other foot and you can put it in North Carolina. And you'd be standing in both states at the same time. Well, let's say that if you are have trusted Jesus as your Savior, you've been declared not guilty, you're now living in Tennessee. You're living in Tennessee, because we're better in North Carolina, right? And if my preaching buddies, Joey and Chris from Facebook, listen to this, I'm just kidding. It's, a, it's an illustration. But Tennessee is better than North Carolina, right? So we're walking with the Lord. We're walking in Tennessee. But all of a sudden, we sin. And something we say, something we do, something we fail to say, something we fail to do, and we find ourselves in North Carolina. We are out of God, God's fellowships in Tennessee. We are out of the Now, we're still God's child. I'm a Tennessean through and through. Even though I'm living in North Carolina, my heart belongs in Tennessee. So what do I need to do? Well, I need to get back over here in Tennessee. Well, as a Christian, what do we need to do? How does, God, how does the blood of Christ work for us as a Christian? 1 John 1, verses 7 through 9. Let's keep your finger at Matthew 6. And let's look at 1 John 1, 7 to 9. The book of 1 John is written to Christians, and it's written for the purpose that Christians might know they have eternal life. John tells us that's why he wrote the book. But as we look at 1 John, beginning at verse 7, but if we walk in the light, that's in Tennessee, if we walk in the light, as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another in the blood of Jesus Christ and his Son cleanses us from all sin. We're in the light. We're in Tennessee. We don't, we're doing good. But then in verse 8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. So all of a sudden we find out we're in North Carolina. No matter how hard we try, as Christians, we end up in North Carolina. But once you get to North Carolina, you've got two choices. You need to stay in North Carolina, or you can Get back over here in Tennessee. Look at verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. When I find myself in sin, I need to confess. Lord, I've sinned, and you know what? God knows it. You're not going to surprise him. God, I, I tell God, Lord, I've done this, and God's not going to say, well, Andy, I didn't know that. God knows. You know what you do when you confess? You are agreeing with God that you've sinned. You are agreeing with God that what you did is against his will and that it got your fellowship with him out of whack. We don't confess for God's sake. We confess for our sake. I've heard people say, there's even a contemporary Christian song out about I'm only human. I don't like that song. Because you know what saying I'm only human is? It's making an excuse. Well, God, I'm only human. Well, you know this woman you gave me, like Adam 
tried to do? Well, that wife I'm married to, or that, Lord, you don't know my husband. My husband got me so exasperated, I just said an ugly word. It's his fault. It's like we want God to have sympathy for us because we're human. Y'all, we don't need God's sympathy. We need God's forgiveness. Amen? Amen. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts. The the, the situation is we're sinners. The solution is forgiveness through the blood of Jesus Christ. But then there's a stumbling block. That's point number three, the stumbling block. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts. Now Jesus adds a little caveat to the Christian's forgiveness. He says, forgive our debts as we forgive our debtors. Uh Uh-oh. In order for me to get God's forgiveness, I have to forgive those other people that have done things against me. As a matter of fact, in Greek, the way this reads is, forgive us our debts as we have forgiven our debtors. It's in past tense in Greek. In other words, God is assuming, Jesus is assuming here that when we ask for forgiveness, we've already forgiven. He's already assuming that we've made things right with our brothers. How do I know this? Hold your finger here and look in Matthew chapter 5. Just go back a page. Matthew chapter 5 and verse 24. And I got a little bitty print, so I don't have to go back a page. It's on the same page. Matthew 5, 24. Starting in verse 23 for context. Therefore, if you bring your gift to the altar, in other words, you're standing in line to give your sacrifice for forgiveness, and there you remember that your brother has something against you. You've got crossways with somebody. You sinned against them or they've sinned against you. Leave your gift before the altar and go your way. First be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. You say, well, Brother Andy, you don't know what that person did to me. And you know what? I don't. But I've got a question. Is what that person did to you any more than what we've done to Jesus? Is that tab that that person owes you any bigger than the tab that we owe God that God's forgiven us for? Very quickly, two parables that Jesus uses to teach this illustration, and and I'm not going to read them. You can write these down and go back and read them for yourself. Luke chapter 7, verses 36 to 47. Luke 7, 36 to 47, and then Luke 18, 21 to 35. And Luke chapter 7, One of the religious leaders invited Jesus to a party. And when Jesus got to the party, a woman that was probably a prostitute busts the party. In our world, it would be like a party at the deacon's house and a hooker slips in. And the hooker comes to Jesus and she bows down to Jesus. She anoints his feet with oil and dries them with tears. And the deacon that invited Jesus to the party, he says, in his mind now, he says, if Jesus only knew what kind of woman that was, he wouldn't let her do that to him. And so Jesus reads Simon's mind. 
and says, Simon, I need to talk to you about something. He said, since I came to your house, he said, you didn't offer me water to wash my feet. But this woman's washed my feet. He said, you didn't give me a kiss, which is the common way of a greeting in those days. She said, this woman has kissed my feet. And she continues to worship me. She said, Simon, do you know why this is? And I call this the 747 principle. This is Luke 747. It says, she loves much because she has been forgiven much. The more that we understand our forgiveness, the more we understand how much God has forgiven us through the blood of Jesus, the easier it's going to be for us to forgive those folks that have sinned against us. If we're having trouble forgiving y'all, we need to ask God to help us understand how much he's forgiven us. And then the parable over in Luke chapter 18, this fellow owes his boss millions of dollars. He'll never be able to pay the payment back, and now it's payday. And he comes into his boss, he gets on his hands and knees, he says, boss, I can't pay you. He says, if you'll be patient with me, I'll pay the house, he's going to pay back millions of dollars. But if you'll be patient, I'll pay it, the boss says. You seem to have a good heart. He says, I've forgiven you of this debt. Could you imagine having a million dollar debt totally wiped away? Don't worry about it. You're forgiven. Well, of course, the guy's like, whew, I'm glad I don't have to pay that. He goes on out and he finds a guy that owes him 50 bucks. And the guy that owes him 50 bucks, he says, he says the same thing the other guy just said to his boss. He says, I can't pay you. But if you'll be patient with me, I'll pay every cent I owe. And he's probably got a pretty good chance of paying back $50, doesn't he? You know what the guy that's just been forgiven a million dollars does? He says, no, thank you. He says, you're going to pay me back every penny you owe me. And he grabbed him by the throat. And he was going to strangle him. And, of course, they stop it. And these guys go back into the original boss and say, you're not going to believe what this guy just did. Well, the boss kind of stuck his finger at the guy and says, come here. And he said, I've forgiven you a million dollars. And you can't forgive this guy $50? He says, I'll tell you what we'll do. He said, you're going to prison. Debtor's prison. Some of the translations says they delivered him to the torturers. That's a cool verse. He got delivered to the torturers. <laughs> but what that really means is debtor's prison. He got sent to debtor's prison. To re you know, we had debtor's prison in this country for, for a while. I never understood how a person could pay their debt if they're in prison. But anyway, we look at the torturers. I, I don't know how you could cut off a guy's finger and say, you're going to pay me the $5 million now? You know, that you cut all his hands off. He can't do it. But the point is, even though the guy had a million dollar debt forgiven, it never it didn't translate from his checkbook to his heart, did it? God has forgiven us for so much. And he tells us that if God's going to forgive us as Christians, and he's writing, he's speaking this sermon on the Mount to his disciples. He says, Pray this, our Father in heaven. 
We, we stand to a different standard than the world does. When we forgive, God will forgive us. If we fail to forgive, God won't forgive us. This is so important that if you'll turn the page and look at verse 14 and 15 of Matthew 6, Jesus says, For if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is so important to Jesus, and he knows how we humans are. And he says, just in case you weren't listening in the prayer, let me make it perfectly clear that if we're going to get forgiveness, we have to forgive. The ability to forgive is a sign that you have been born again. Because let me tell you what, the ability to forgive, that doesn't come from human nature. Our human nature tells us to choke the guy by the throat. That's what that guy did, right? Somebody sins against you, but we're going to pay them back. You just wait till it's dark and you're not looking. Or, or you wait till this, and I'm, I'm going to pay you back. That's, that's our human nature. It takes the Holy Spirit forgiving us through the power of Jesus Christ. For us to be able to forgive. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. These verses teach us that kingdom citizens have learned a total dependence on God. Dependence for physical sustenance as well as dependence for forgiveness. Our physical needs and our spiritual needs. I need and you need daily bread and daily forgiveness. And as we so often do, we end with this. Without Jesus, we have none of it. With Jesus, we have everything. We have forgiveness. God declares us not guilty. We're adopted into the family of God. Ephesians 1 says God gives us every spiritual blessing. And I don't care how much your father has or your grandfather has, it doesn't touch what God has. And everything God has is yours because you're one of the kids. Amen? Amen? The question is, are you? And that reminds me remind you that if you're not a child of God, that you are separated from God eternally. It's not because you're not smart. It's not because you're not intelligent. It's, it's, it's just because that's the default position for man. We're sinners. We don't have to teach. Nobody had to teach you to sin. Little bitty baby. That little bitty baby, when he's hungry, he cries. When he's dirty, he cries. When he wants to be held, he cries. And sometimes... When you feed the baby, he still cries. And sometimes when you change the baby, he still cries. And sometimes when you hold the baby, she still cries. That baby just crying. We're born self-centered. Now, I understand we're born helpless, and the only way to get what we need is to cry. But I remember this vividly. And I, I, that was probably about three or four years. This is one of the earliest memories I have. I was talking to my mom about it a while back. It's when we lived on Bell Grimes Lane, and she was telling me of the years. So I had to have been about three years old. 
I took some nails off the guy that lived behind us. I took two nails off of his porch. And I brought them, and my mom said, where in the world did you get those? And I said, I got them from the house over there. And my mom said, why did you take those? And you know what I said? I don't know. I knew full well while I took them. I warned them. I had never realized or heard my parents lie. They didn't have to teach me that. You know how I did that? That was in my human nature. We are born sinners. And if we don't make a conscious decision to turn from sin and turn to God, we're going to be eternally separated from God. Because God and sin can't be together. So if you're in that situation this morning, do you realize you're a sinner? Admit it. Just like I said with us Christians, God knows it. You're not going to surprise it. Surprise God. All you're going to do is say, God, I recognize I'm a sinner and I can't save myself. I need help. I can't save myself, but I know Jesus can save me and I believe and trust in his finished work on the cross. Lord, please save me. And guess what? The Lord will save you. He'll take all of your sin, give them to Jesus, take all of Jesus' righteousness, give it to you. He'll declare you not guilty and you'll be adopted into God's family. But guess what? You'll still be dealing with sin. The difference is now you're sinning as God's child. You're still God's child. That relationship stays the same. But we get out of God's fellowship. We get out of God's blessing. God can't bless you if you're living in sin. And so we've got one or two choices if we find ourselves in North Carolina. Either stay there or get back in Tennessee. If you're one of God's children and you realize you're out of God's will, through a lifestyle you're living or through unconfessed sin, whatever it is, you've got a choice this morning. Stay out of God's fellowship or confess your sin and let the blood of Jesus cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Now to me, that's a no-brainer. What are you going to do this morning? Let's think about that while we pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for loving us. Thank you for offering us forgiveness through Jesus Christ. And I just pray that during this invitation time, your Holy Spirit will search our hearts. And I just pray that if there's someone here that's not your child, they've never trusted Jesus as their Savior, I pray you will give them the courage to do that this very moment. This very during this invitation time. Father, if there's someone out there who is a child of yours, but somehow they've lost their way and they've gotten out of fellowship with you, I pray your Holy Spirit will reveal this to them. And I pray that they too will have the courage to confess their sin and to get back in fellowship with you. In Jesus' name, amen.